Our scripture reading this morning is from, let me get to it, Job chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, 14 through 21, and then Job chapter 19, 1 through 12, and 21 through 29. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight, you who tear yourself in your anger? Shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? He is torn from the tent in which he trusted, and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath, and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth, and he has no name in the streets. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people, and no survivor where he used to live. They of the west are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the east. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who loves or who knows not God. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and Make me a disgrace, make my disgrace an argument against me. Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope is he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamped around my tent. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that ye may know that there is a judgment. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
There's really nothing in the Christian canon quite like the book of Job. A number of commentators have uh, pointed that out. And if you're not familiar with the story of Job, Job is a righteous man. Satan challenges God that Satan is righteous for no reason, uh, except that God keeps blessing him. And so God gives Satan permission first to wipe out all of his children and to take all of his possessions, and then secondly, to afflict his body with terrible sores in which he sits in misery, scraping his flesh and the trash heap outside the camp, uh, mourning his condition, lamenting his condition. Three friends gather to try to understand what's happening with him and to dialogue with him over what's transpired. And uh, we're in the midst of considering these dialogues, taking each week uh, what the friend has to say, and today in the case of Bildad, and what Job says in response. And to be sure, the book of Job is somewhat repetitive. Right? Even by now, if you've been in the sermon series, you know, yeah, I've kind of heard some of this before. Indeed, that is uh, true. But I think even in reading Job, even in considering it together as a church, Job has a lesson for us, which is uh, there is something to sitting and dialoguing uh, with God. There is something to um, not rushing to remove ourselves from the pain and suffering that confronts us, but to actually abide and to wrestle in the midst of it with Job. Uh, or like Job does. You know, if I was your adversary, if I was against you, and I was trying to thwart you, one of the things that I would do is to make you as busy as possible so that you never had time to sit and be quiet and actually meditate on big questions. So that you had time to actually sit and to ask God, and why, why is this happening? This doesn't seem fair, God. And I know, I, you know, in humility and reverence, I ask in a certain way, but, you know, it just seems like you have heaped certain things upon me. Right? That's the kind of conversation that I think Job teaches us that God would like us to have with him. But we can't when we're too busy. I was stunned. Uh, maybe you saw just a few weeks ago the Nielsen report came out, which reports on uh, Americans' use of electronic uh, media. And the average American now spends over 11 hours either watching live TV, uh, 11 hours a day, watching live TV, being on a smartphone, or listening uh, to the radio. Is it, I mean, that's really remarkable. Given that the average American is only awake 16 to 18 hours a day, right? 11 hours being connected to something. Granted, you may be doing something else, but our inability to be quiet I was actually thinking the other. It just I was thinking about how, you know, those activities. Like I remember growing up, and laundry being hung on the line, and I thought you would never see any. Well, you never see anybody doing that anymore, anyway. But if you, you would never see anybody doing that without earbuds in, today, right? The notion that you actually were okay to be alone with your thoughts. Uh, J. Gresham Machen, a famous Presbyterian minister um, and theologian. Uh, lamented the way technology was invading human life and, and thought humans are no longer able uh, to be alone with their own thoughts. They're not, he worried about this situation that if a, if a person wasn't going to be able to think and to meditate, what would be lost? You know, Machen lived uh, at the turn of the last century. And when he said that, he said it in the 1920s, and he was talking about radios being put in cars. 
And now how nobody, every time you got into a car now, the radio is on. And nobody could drive simply left with their own thoughts. Could he imagine a day like today? Right? How often do you sit? How often do you meditate? For how long? Right? Let this be, um, even as we go through Job and bear through some of the repetition, let this be a challenge to you to sit and to allow the repetition of the big questions in life and to slow down. Some of you are ridiculous busy by, uh, simply by your environment. Some of you are ridiculously busy because you make yourselves busy because you don't want to slow down and you don't want to meditate because it's a scary place to be because that's where the big questions crop up. But in going through Job, it has to be at least in part a challenge to be willing to meet God in that way. And as we, we do drop in here to Bildad's words, we find that Bildad isn't necessarily saying anything new, but we do notice that at this point that um, the dialogue keeps getting heightened. The friends are punching a little bit harder, and Job is responding a little bit more free, uh, fiercely. They're getting tired of each other. The friends are, are you kind of get the feeling, or think, Job, would you just confess your sin? You're suffering, there must be sin. Confess it, let's put it to bed. And Job's saying, you're not listening to me. I don't have sin. I mean, or this suffering is not a result. Job does not say, I don't have sin. In fact, he acknowledges that he may have sin. But he, what he says is, the suffering is not the result of a sin. The suffering is the result of God making me his target. And you guys aren't listening to me. And so look, just at Bildad's, we'll spend very little time on Bildad, but I want to point out one thing to you. And if you look at the beginning of Bildad's words in 18, verse 2, he says, How long will you hunt for words? Right? He's saying, uh, Job, would you please shut up? And in verse 3, why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? Job, do you think we're stupid? We know that you've sinned. There's no other answer to what's going on here. And in verse 4, Bildad says, You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? What is Bildad saying? Bildad's saying, listen, the earth... The rock of the earth has been formed by God in a certain way. And the certain way is that the righteous are blessed and the sinners are punished. And you are punished and you expect us to think what you're suffering is not the result of sin. You are suggesting to us that the entire cosmos, the way that God has made the earth and set up the way things should go, should all be moved for you. That you're the one exception to the rule that God has put into place. I say, no way. We know, we know the structure, right? And the structure, which is certainly uh, very tightly tied to some of the wisdom of Proverbs, but you can see it in verse 5. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The wicked will be held responsible, right? Contrary to Ecclesiastes, which laments the wicked aren't always held responsible. But for Bildad and the friends, the wicked will be held responsible. And then in verse 8 of 18, for he is cast into a net by his own feet and he walks on its mesh. Not only the wicked held responsible, you're going to get tripped up by your own wickedness. Sooner or later, the evil mess up. And whatever you're engaged in, you'll be compromised by. And for Bildad, this is the way the world works. This is the structure. And as his anger grows, you actually see the friends... Uh, almost a desire or an intent or even by necessity uh, trying to destroy Job. Because if Job is right, 
their structure is wrong and they don't understand God. And not only that, they don't necessarily know why they would be blessed. It may not be for their righteousness, which means they may not be righteous, which in fact would be the declaration at the end of the book. And it at least challenges us to think sometimes we live by structures. We think things run a certain way and we can be very black and white. So I've, um, you know, I've invested in my marriage and loved my wife or my husband well. Our marriage should be just so. Why? Where is God? You feel that, that the marriage isn't good because this, you, and you've relied on the structure, but you realize the structure hasn't necessarily worked the way it, uh, you hoped it would. Or I've, invest, I've trained my children up in the way that they should go, only to walk away from the Lord. Or I've pursued righteous and nobility, and the real creep at work gets the promotion and is driving the new Mercedes. Why, why, why? Right? I thought there was a structure. I thought God would honor a certain way of living. Why is this not the case? And that, right, Bildad and the friends are not willing to ask that question. They're not willing to wrestle with the failure of their structure in the experience of Job. And where do you get really angry? Where do you feel, even like the friends, is there someone that you feel like you have to destroy because they, they just they interfere with your structure? I often actually see this amongst Christians who, um, who get angry, uh, perhaps in political cycles, right? Not, not necessarily unwarrantedly, um, but even against sinners. And, say, and they say you have a neighbor who's the biggest jerk on the street, and everything seems to be going his way. Do you love him, or do you hate him? It's easier to hate him. Because it brings everything that you believe about God and whether he's good and whether he's trustworthy into question. Why would God permit blessing on this guy? And why would he not bless me? Right? This is what the friends are unwilling to, to, to walk into. And this is what Job as a book actually invites us into. It says, you, this is life. This is the way God has permitted it to be. And it is intended for, to draw you in to him. Ultimately, as Job will finish, to experience more of him. So we're challenged by, uh, by Bildad's lack of ability to walk into that, which is exactly where Job goes. In fact, even though he voices his frustration with his friends, that's not his real beef. His real argument is with God, and he has the strongest words yet, in my opinion, for God, which you can read in 19 verses 7 through 11. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. When is the last time that you said to God, there's no justice with you? Strong language. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my pass. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. Job says, my real problem is not the counsel of my friends. My real problem is that God has made me a target. That God is actually standing as my foe in permitting the suffering to come upon me. And perhaps you have felt that way. And we didn't read it, but in 13 through 19 of chapter 19, Job has this terrible lament that he is utterly alone. He says, I'm reduced to skin and bones. He feels death approaching. 
And he says, my friends have left me. My relatives have deserted me. My brothers and sisters do not recognize me. And the breath of my wife is a stranger. We haven't even heard about his wife uh, since she appeared earlier, right? And urged him to curse God and die. And now he says, we're totally estranged. He has no relationship left. He sits utterly alone and in the most pathetic place, which is, is this call, I think, to, um, to consider the real nature of discipleship, which at, at the end of the day is, is God enough for you? Apart from everything else, alone. Will God satisfy you? When other things desert you, will you run to him and seek that first and foremost, apart from everything else? This is the question that Job finds himself, what am I going to do? Because now I'm utterly alone. My suffering, will I draw near to him or will I move away from him? And uh, he longs for an audience with God, but that audience is not forthcoming. God seems very ready to let Job sit in the midst of his acute suffering. Why? Why does it have to be this hard? Why couldn't God simply have said, well, I'm going to give you a bout of leprosy. Or, you know, I'm going to let a few invading armies come in and they'll get you for a while, but then you'll seek me and then we'll go beat them. Why couldn't it be easier in that fashion? Why does this have to be so cataclysmic? I, I really don't think I have an answer for that. When we look at the world and the suffering that happens all around us, why does it have to be as bad as it is? I don't know. But I know certain things come out of it and that God achieves certain ends through it. One example we could look at would be uh, the very early years of uh, J.R. Tolkien. He was uh, just 24 years old. He was a young scholar at Oxford. And uh, it was... um, I'm going to check the year. I didn't write down the year. Oh, I did. I thought I did. 1916. So... uh, of course, World War I, the Great War, as it was called at the time, is raging. And uh, Tolkien has to go into the, um, the British uh, Army. And he goes in as a junior officer. And at the time, junior officers would be killed at a rate of 12 per minute. So he said goodbye to his young bride, thinking that he would never see her again, and no reason to. And headed to France and arrived just in time for the Battle of the Somme, which is one of the bloodiest battles in military history. You see, what happened was uh, it was the Allied effort to break the central power, the stalemate with the central powers. And they were invading um, the Germans, and they thought they had done enough bombing to clear out the trenches where the Germans were, had taken up position. But as they, as they rushed in right, and invaded, they realized that they hadn't been successful. And the Germans were just there waiting. And it's one of the bloodiest slaughters in military history. By the nightfall on the first day, 20,000 Englishmen had fallen dead. Uh, Tolkien would lose three of his closest friends during the battles. And it was in this horrific um, place uh, of, of existing in the midst of dead and decaying human flesh, engaged in battle, that Tolkien would sit as a signaler in some of the trenches and began to write. He began to write stories of orcs and dwarves and elves, stories of great powers of evil 
and of uh, young, uh, small, weak people who would stand against them and battles that would rage. And of course, that would ultimately take shape uh, as uh, the Lord of the Rings. But as he was uh, later in life, he would look back and he would say um, that much of what he was writing and much of the Lord of the Rings uh, and even the Hobbit owes to his experience in the Great War. So there's something about in the, sitting in the midst of this tragedy and this human horrificness that for Tolkien sparked his imagination to hope in something that would transcend uh, something that was hopeless, right? Uh, coming out, I mean, how could you have any hope for humanity coming out of the Great War? But in this place, he begins to hope for something for which he, he doesn't necessarily have logical reason to hope, uh, but this is what one commentator would say uh, and then use a quote from the Lord of the Rings. Uh, he writes, Even this was not the whole story. For Token, there was a spiritual dimension and a human soul struggle against evil. There was a force of grace and goodness stronger than the will to power. Even in a forsaken land at the threshold of Mordor, Samwise Gamgee apprehends this. Quote, For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow is not only a small and passing thing, there was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. I don't know of a better description of, of where we're at in Job. Because in the midst of all the darkness and all the hopelessness and in the midst of God's silence, right? Job will articulate something that is like a shaft, clear and cold, the notion that the end, in the end the shadow is only a small and passing thing, there was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And we see it as we come down to one of the more famous passages in the book of Job. In fact, you can start at verse 23 with me. And Job says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Probably the most famous passage in the book of Job, about which we need to say a number of things. Job begins by saying, I'm about to utter something that's part of my story and my testimony, that, and I know my life is expiring. I want it to transcend my life. So it must be inscribed in something permanent. It must be etched in stone. What is it that he wants to utter? It's his confidence in his case and his confidence that he will be vindicated. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, this little section, 25 through 27, is pretty difficult, right? Hebrew uh, scholars lock horns over how to read and interpret all of this there are two basic questions that you need to wrestle with in deciding how you're going to read it. The first is, who is the Redeemer? And the second is, when is this happening? Now, a, uh, an easy Christian reading, which the ESV participates a little bit in, is to simply say, this is an amazing um, uh, glimpse, prophecy of Jesus, and it's a prophecy of the resurrection. I, I think that's not wrong, but overreaching. And, and this is why. The word that's translated there for redeemer is just the Hebrew word goel. 
Now, goel is used all throughout the Old Testament in numerous different ways. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Probably the most familiar to you is the book of Ruth. When Ruth's husband dies, she's uh, a widow and has no hope until uh, what we might call a kinsman redeemer, Boaz, comes and marries her to give her children. And that is, Boaz is a goel. Right? A redeemer of sorts or a vindicator. He, he comes in and solves the situation. In Deuteronomy and 2 Samuel, yeah, Goel can be uh, someone in a family blood feud. So if you uh, kill me, my brother comes to avenge my blood, right? In Old Testament terms, he's my Goel. Uh, in Leviticus, if I was to redeem you, a family member from slavery, or if I was to redeem property that you had lost and give it back to you, I would be a Goel. Uh, now, all of those are human examples, but Goel is used frequently to describe God, most often as the one who delivers Israel from Egypt. Right? I've, he comes in as the redeemer or the vindicator and rescues them from this situation in Egypt. So you have a pretty good idea of what the word is about. Right, the, the word, and in Proverbs, it's about the Goel is the one who stands for the widow or the orphan. So it's the person who steps in, who is strong in a position of weakness and rights the wrong. He sets it to rights. And this is what Job is saying. So I know that my Redeemer will live. Well, who is, who is Job referring to? By ca- so some would say, well, Job must be referring to God. Frankly, I don't know how you can do that. I, just, I think it's a lousy reading. It's going to be frank with you. Um, for this reason, J- Job all along has been saying, uh, I don't expect redemption from God. I need someone to act on my behalf so that I can be vindicated before God. I want a hearing. And even the word stand there, um, at last you will stand upon the earth. It's a juridical term. It's somebody who stands up in the courtroom on your behalf. So Job in 9.33, he's asked for an umpire to go between him and God. In chapter 16, he's asked for, um, for a witness that will bear testimony to his innocence. And here he looks for a goel, someone who will come and redeem the situation, but in that very redemption, in that sense, will stand against God because we just read 19.7-11, uh, through 11, which is about Job saying, uh, there, God is not providing justice. God is my adversary. God is, is treating me like a foe. Right? So I don't think he's speaking about God at all in terms of speaking of him as his redeemer. And when the ESV, just as a note, you need to think about what you're reading when you read your Bibles. There is no reason whatsoever to capitalize redeemer. Right? That is not a translating decision. That is an interpretive decision. And by doing so, they've made you think, oh, this must be a reference to divinity by giving it a capital letter. No, it's not. There's no reason to think that. Okay. And so, but again, those are, that's what's on the table in terms of thinking through who. Now, when the complexities are intense with verses 26 and 27, and I'm just going to say at the end of the day what I think, Job has already spoken definitive. He sees death as definitive. There's no notion that he looks after death to something that's going to happen. And so what I think Job is saying is that uh, ultimately, my story can't really end in death. 
I will essentially be dead. I will be, I will be whittled away. I will be almost expiring. But if I have any notion that there is a goodness in God, if I have any notion that there is a rightness in this cosmos that he has created, then there must be a Goel who will show up on my behalf and redeem this situation. Because if there's not, there's no reason to conclude that God is good. There's no reason to conclude there's any hope. There's no reason to wait for death. And I think that's as true today as it was then. Someone must show up to intercede. Job is recognized he doesn't necessarily deserve. Job will vacillate. Right? He'll say, at one point he'll say, I deserve an audience with God. At another point he'll say, I don't deserve an audience with God. I need somebody to represent me before God. And he goes back and forth in this place of suffering, knowing that his suffering is not the result of what he's done, but because God has targeted him. He longs for someone to stand in this place. But again, why, why doesn't that person just come to the fort? Why is it made so difficult? Why does Job have to suffer so dramatically? Well, we've already noted with Token that in the midst of that suffering, an imagination erupts as it does for Job to look. To, there must be something that is going to enter in from the outside that will remedy this untenable situation because I cannot die in this suffering and God be good because I don't deserve it, right? Nor can I compromise God as unjust as of yet he's God. Something must happen to remedy this situation. So he looks for the umpire, for the witness, for the goel. You know, uh, this week I, I finally downloaded Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, Right, if you, those of you who laughed have seen it because it was a sorely wasted five dollars that I uh, regret. Sorry if you, I'm not trying to be mean if you liked it, but right, let's be frank, let's be honest with one another. That movie took plot flaws to an entirely new level in cinema, in cinema. Uh, things that just made no sense and dots that cannot be connected, but. Why it was actually worth it for me, and what was really cool is you have um, you have Superman, who's called in the movies, you're a god among men, right, indestructible, and spends all of his time running around solving the ills of humanity, rescuing people, thwarting aliens and bad guys, and uh, causing things to not be as bad as they could be. But because he doesn't make everything just right because he doesn't remedy everything people start to hold him accountable and people start to hate him and people start to uh, blame him for things he's not even responsible for right and I thought you know that's exactly what happens when God shows up we we've held him accountable for it not being the way that we want it and we heap blame upon him for things that aren't his fault and when he shows up, uh, we come up with ridiculous charges against him like they do against Superman in the movie. And when he shows up, we kill him. And that's what happens when God just shows up. So maybe it's actually grace and mercy that God waits to show up for Job. Maybe it's grace and mercy that God waits to show up for us in ways that he would not be simply subject to our whims and our desires, and we would act so pervertedly and wrongly with him. And perhaps it's so that he can, at the right time and at the right moment, show up in the right way as a goel that we've never seen. We saw in the Old Testament that the goel redeems what's taken away. 
The goel redeems one from imprisonment or slavery. And the goel is the one who stands defending against wrath. And Jesus will do all of those things as the goel, as the redeemer. With sadness, I was uh, reading the story of Fatih uh, Bayoud. Fatih Bayoud is a Tunisian uh, doctor in uh, doctor in the Tunisian military, and he um, he had one son Anwar who he loved very much and invested in very much, and uh, it broke his heart when Anwar, who was troubled, uh, decided that he would go and join ISIS. And so Anwar disappears, and his location is unknown, and he's gone for almost a year. And finally Anwar realizes what he's done, and he flees ISIS, and he, he turns himself into the Turkish military, who hold him. They get word uh, to Fayoud, saying, Your son, uh, we have him, and he, we want you to come get him. He wants to be picked up. And so with great joy, Fayoud goes and pursues his son. He runs in to the chaos of the Middle East and why he's waiting to meet his wife at the Istanbul airport. He is one of the victims of the three suicide bombers of ISIS uh, uh, that, you know, opened fire, blew themselves up, and Fayyud died in that attack. And so rushing into the chaos of love for his son and pursuing to bring him home, he would die in that attempt. And one of his friends said he loved his son so much he would have done anything for him. He went there to bring him back. I don't know why it's so hard, but I know the delay ultimately results in the father that loves you so much he runs into the chaos. And when he does, he's blown up for you. He's the goel that stands on your behalf that we might be redeemed. Let's give him thanks. Father, we... We praise you this morning, but sometimes those words that we use all the time seem so inadequate. Uh, We have been troubled since you have created us, and we are sorry for that. We thank you for running in and being at Goel in a way that Job could only faintly visualize, in which the way in which he thinks of an arbiter and an umpire and a witness and a redeemer is just a silhouette of the goel that you would truly be in Jesus Christ. So we do praise you and we glorify you and we honor you and we are humbled by your love. Would you forgive us for so often uh, sitting in our self-pity, so often thinking of ourselves so often forgetting what you have done to redeem us and to make uh, the story such that it won't end badly. No matter what happens here, the story ends beautifully. And for that, we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.